Well, do please open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1, to chapter 9, verse 5. A slightly longer passage this week than we have been doing. An extraordinarily significant part of the Bible, this uh, service of the saints, this collection, and a very, very um, poorly understood one generally in the church. This was one of the most significant things that happened in the early church, this collection, and uh, one that you can read about in, in lots and lots of places in the New Testament. But uh, without understanding the background, uh, we can sort of miss the whole point of it. So let's pray and ask God to help us this morning. Heavenly Father, please help us this morning to understand your word in its context, to understand what it is saying, and to understand how we might apply it to ourselves today. Now, if we ask it in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, in today's Bible passage, Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to give to this collection that he calls this service to the saints. For Paul, it was a very, very important collection. But to understand why, we've got to get a bit of background. We've got to understand what's going on in the early church. Now, Jesus, contrary to what many people seem to think today, was not in fact a Catholic. Jesus was in fact a Jew. All of Jesus' disciples, they were Jewish. All of the early church, Jewish. The Apostle Paul himself, who wrote this letter, Jewish. But over time, non-Jews, Gentiles, started to become interested in Christianity. In fact, massive numbers of Gentiles, many more Gentiles than Jews. And one of the biggest issues in early Christianity, an issue that, that, that uh, is covered in many places in the New Testament, was the question of what to do about all of these non-Jewish Christians. Now, people were asking, can Gentiles really be Christians? And, and what do they need to do? Do they need to become Jewish first? Do they need to convert to Judaism? Do the men need to get circumcised? Do they need to start eating kosher? Do they need to start following the laws of Moses? There were major debates about the whole issue. And the Apostle Paul was right there at the forefront, arguing that Gentiles could have equal status as Christians. No need to become Jewish, they just need to rely on Jesus. Those of us who did the book of Acts together will remember that major council in Acts chapter 15 that confirmed Paul's view, but that wasn't the end of the matter. It still created a lot of tension. In fact, we'll see later in the letter, it was still creating tension in Corinth. And the whole thing had the potential to divide the early church and to, to make Christianity end up just a, a, a sect within Judaism. But Paul, Paul came, came upon a great idea. It was a way to foster harmony in the church. So is that clicking, that fan? I'm the only one who's being driven up the wall by it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Warren. So Paul came upon this great idea, this way to foster harmony in the church. The situation was that many of the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were very poor. Uh, there'd been famine at one stage, other bad stuff. But the other thing was they were kind of separated out from their families now because they'd become Christians. They were being excluded, persecuted, weren't being helped and supported by their families anymore, and so they were really struggling. On the other hand, you had a whole heap of Gentile churches who were going very well financially. And so the idea was this. It was very simple. Get the rich Gentile Christians to help out the poor Jewish Christians, to give them a financial gift. It was a great idea. So simple. But on the one hand... 
for the Gentile Christians, it was an opportunity for them to express their unity with the Jewish Christians. It was a way they could say thank you to the Jews for giving them Jesus, for giving them Christianity. It was a way they could share, uh, share with the Jewish, pe- the Jewish Christian people, show their love, show their care to them as fellow Christians. On the other hand, by accepting the gift, the Jewish Christians, they were accepting that they were on the same team as the Gentiles. Their Jewish non-Christian family wouldn't help them anymore, but now they were being helped by their new family, the church, including both Jews and Gentiles. It meant a shift of allegiance for the Jewish Christian people. This collection for the poor Jewish Christians, it was a brilliant way to foster harmony and unity within the early church. It was a great way, great way to get the Jewish Christians to accept Gentile Christians as being on an equal status. Now, Paul first tried the idea back in the 40s. Uh, it was when he was with the church in Antioch. There was a famine down in Jerusalem. Uh, they sent some money down and it worked really well. But a decade or so down the track, the issue was still around the place in the early church about Gentile Christians, and so Paul decided to do it again. It was about 54 AD when Paul was in Corinth, and he suggested the idea to the church there in Corinth, suggested they send some money over to Jerusalem, and they, they thought it was great. They said, great idea, Paul, count us in. Now, like all good telethons, they got really excited and they pledged to give heaps and heaps of money. Big, uh, significant pledge that they made to support this collection and back in 1 Corinthians 16 Paul wise man that he that he was said okay you've you've pledged this big collection now can I suggest that you don't just go scratching in your pockets to find it but you put aside a bit each week a little bit each week so that you can fulfill the pledge that you made well now as Paul is writing to Corinthians he's in Macedonia the Macedonians were poor not like the Corinthians. And Paul did not expect them to make a contribution to, to Jerusalem. But he did tell them about his plan, told them about uh, what was going to happen. He told them about how keen the Corinthians were and the big pledge that they'd make. And then to Paul's surprise, the Macedonians also wanted in. They were so inspired by what a good idea it was. They were so inspired by the generous pledges that had been made by the Corinthians that they begged Paul for them to be able to participate as well. Now, of course, Paul let them, and they were very, very generous. Okay, see the background? Come back with me if I've lost you. See the background? The Corinthians have pledged to give to this special collection, and the Macedonians are now giving very generously. Now, as we saw last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, can you remember Titus has just come back to Paul from Corinth with a whole heap of news? It's basically good news. You remember last week that uh, the the Corinthians have sorted out a whole heap of stuff that Paul was worried about. But it wasn't all good news from Corinth. Titus also raised a few issues of concern. And the first issue relates to this pledge that the Corinthians had made, this pledge to give to Paul's collection. It seems that the Corinthians hadn't followed Paul's advice back in 1 Corinthians 16. Not much money had been gathered, nothing like what was promised. And so in chapters 8 to 9, Paul deals with this issue. Now he starts off by telling the Corinthians about the Macedonians. He talks about how generous they were. Uh, Contrary to what Paul expected, despite their poverty, the Macedonians gave generously. Have a look with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace 
that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. So the Macedonians were very generous. The thing is, now the Corinthians need to follow their example because they've pledged, they've promised that, that they would give generously. And so Paul says, look, I'm, I'm sending Titus along to give you a bit of a, bit, bit, bit of a kick along. Verse 6. So we urge Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, Paul says he's not commanding them. You don't command generosity. Now he's encouraging them. He's, he's seeing if their love for Jesus is sincere because, because the fact is Jesus has been extraordinarily generous to us. Jesus gave up the riches of heaven. He took upon himself the poverty of our sin so that we can enjoy the riches of heaven. Jesus has been so generous. And if the Corinthians love Jesus, if they sincerely love Jesus, well, they will be generous as they promised to be. Verse 8. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by com comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And so Paul tells them what to do. He says, you don't have to do like the Macedonians. You don't have to give beyond your means. I'm not asking for anything like that. I just want you to give what you promised to give a year ago. Finish what you started. Verse 10. And here is my advice about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now, finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what he does not have. Can you see what's going on here then? It's like one of those ads that you see after the telethons. Uh, you know, you had the telethon for um, the tsunami or something like that. Everyone's got very excited and promised to give uh, $100 over the telephone. But then for the next few weeks, you need to have those advertisements saying, OK, remember that you promised to give $100 to the telethon. Well, now's the time to cough up. Um, because, of course, people don't always uh, match what they pledge. Well, that's what's going on here. Now, Paul then goes on to say, he's not trying to make the Corinthians poor and the Jerusalem Christians rich. What he's trying to do, he says, is to facilitate, and here's an important word, is to facilitate equality among God's people. Uh, like there was in the wilderness, he says, when God gave manna. You remember that sort of um, bread that he gave to the Israelites in the wilderness. Verse 13. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. Then there will be equality, as it is written, and here's the passage about the manna in the wilderness, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. 
You might not have picked this up, but there's actually a very significant double meaning in here. Paul says that this collection is about equality. But it's not just financial equality that he's talking about. It's about the equality before God of his people. It comes out of the way Paul uses the Old Testament quote. When God gave the Israelites the manna in the wilderness, there was equality. They each got what they needed. There wasn't more for the rich people. There wasn't more for the clever people. There wasn't even more for the godly people. No, among God's saved people, saved out of Egypt, there was an equality. An equality of manna, this bread, that pointed to their equality as God's saved people. Do you see how it works? So what Paul's saying now, he's using this quote and saying there should be an equality among the churches. An equality of money but an equality of money that points to their equality before God. Can you see how radical that now is? Because it's not talking about Israel like it was in the Old Testament quote. Now it's talking about the churches, both Jewish and Gentile. Their sharing amongst themselves manifests their equality before God as his people. This collection is not just a matter of money. This is about recognising the equal status of Gentiles in the church. Now... Everybody looks very bored by this today. But if Paul did not get this right, none of you are here. Well, perhaps one or two exceptions. You're outside. Or or, or you're having to to, to become a Jew and getting getting yourself circumcised and following all the, the kosher laws. If Paul doesn't sort this out, if this gift doesn't work, you're all out. Uh, This is something you ought to be excited about, that this, this brilliant idea came through. This was about equality of Gentiles in the churches. If you're a Gentile, that's something to be very happy about. And, of course, for Paul, with his mission to the Gentiles, this was vitally important to him. All right, well, in the next section, Paul tells them about the team that he's sending. Uh, First, there's Titus. He loves the Corinthians and he's keen to come and see them again. Look at Titus, verse 16. I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you, Uh, For Titus not only welcomed our appeal, but he's coming to you with much enthusiasm and on his own initiative. You've got Titus. Um, Second, there's an unnamed brother, widely respected. And this guy is sent by the Macedonian churches. He's not not directly associated with Paul. He's sent by the Macedonian churches for the sake of accountability. He's like a, a neutral observer, so that it's clear that everything is above board. Verse 18. And we're sending him along with the brother who is praised by all the churches for his service to the gospel. What is more, he was chosen by the churches to accompany us as we carry the offering which we administer in order to honour the Lord himself and to show our eagerness to help. We want to avoid any criticism of the way we administer this liberal gift for we're taking pains to do what is right not only in the eyes of the Lord but also in the eyes of men. Um, And then there's a third person, another unnamed brother, who also has a love for the Corinthians, verse 22. In addition, in addition, we're sending with them our brother who has often proved to us in many ways that he's zealous, now even more so because of his great confidence in you. So you can see we've got a three-man team. Uh, Titus, he's coming from Paul as Paul's uh, um, kind of messenger to give the Corinthians a kick along. But then you've got these two other brothers as well and they're independent observers sent along by the churches. It's a higher level of accountability. These uh, two other guys, they're like those um, government uh, employees who sit there in their suits when the lotto drawer is done. They're making sure that it's all being done above board. A high level of accountability, everything in triplicate. 
And so Paul encourages the Corinthians, do what the team says, get the collection back up and running. Verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they're representatives of the churches and an honour to Christ. Therefore, because it's all in triplicate, show these men the proof of your love and the reason for our pride in you so that the churches can see it. Okay, that's the team. Now in chapter 9, we actually find out what's going on. What's going on is a bit of a delicate, embarrassing political situation. See, the problem is Paul took the Corinthians at their word. They got so excited about this collection for the Jerusalem Christians. Uh, They made all these big pledges to, to, to give to the collection. And then when Paul went across to Macedonia, he was excited. And so... He told the Macedonians all about it, boasted about, oh, you know, I had this idea that we were going to send some money over to Jerusalem. Such a you know, great idea to, to get them to accept the Gentiles on, on equal status. And the Corinthians, they were all for it and they've pledged all this money. Now, he wasn't saying it to trick the Macedonians. Remember, he's already said he didn't expect the Macedonians to give everything. But the fact is, the Macedonians got all excited about it. Wow, great idea and look at those generous Corinthians. The problem is... Titus has now rocked up. The Corinthians haven't fulfilled their pledge. Paul's collected all his money from the Macedonians. He's going to come with some Macedonian representatives to Corinth and the money won't be there. The Macedonians are going to go, what happened to all those generous Corinthians you were talking about? And Paul's going to be very embarrassed. Not least to say that the Corinthians are going to be very embarrassed. And so what Paul's doing, he's sending along the advanced team, Titus and the two neutral observers, to get them to get their money together, rather than he arrives with some Macedonians and they go, oh, and start searching in their pockets for this money that they promised to give a year before. Have a look, chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the saints, for I know you're eagerness to help, and I've been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year you and Achaia were ready to give. And your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I'm sending the brothers, Titus and the other two, in order that our boasting about you in this matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready, as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Okay, can you see what's going on there? It's all a bit delicate, isn't it? The Corinthians promised to give. Paul told the Macedonians. The Macedonians got inspired and gave. But now Titus has come back from Corinth and said, well, I haven't exactly done what they promised they would do. When Paul shows up later, it'll be a real embarrassment. So he's sending across Titus and a couple of others to get him to fix it up before he comes. He's not commanding them to be generous, but in response to the generosity of Jesus, Paul wants them to give generously as they promised they would do. He wants them to help in this this very clever mission to bring equality among the churches. All right. Now, as we think think about applying this passage to ourselves, we need to be very careful. I think that, as I've heard sermons on this passage, this is one of the most abused passages in the Bible. It would be very tempting to just apply this passage to our weekly collection at church or or, or to Mission Day. But we need to remember 
that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a very specific collection. A specific collection at a specific point in church history to do with a specific problem. And there's a sense in which it does not apply to us. I will not encourage you to give to poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem so that they'll accept you as proper Christians. Why would I? It's just not an issue anymore, is it? There's nobody anymore who thinks that Gentiles can't be proper Christians. If anything, nowadays the problem is people think Jews can't be proper Christians. It's part of why I'm urging us to support Paul Morris. We don't need a collection today to get recognition for the equality of God's people. Although, of course, we need to remember the equality of God's people, don't we? Um, If you are relying on Jesus, you are a fully-fledged, equal-status Christian. Don't ever ever look down on anyone else because of their race or, or, or because of anything else. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are of equal status with anybody else. And don't let anyone else look down on you either. Equal status if we're relying on Jesus. A very specific collection for this specific purpose in, in the specific situation in church history. But having said all of that, and I, I want you to have heard me said that, say that, I do think that there are some general principles in this passage that we can pick up, that we can pick up and apply to our completely different kinds of collections that that are not being talked about in this passage. You see see what I'm saying? I'm going to derive some general principles and apply them to different circumstances from what it's talking about. Everybody with me? Okay, let me list a few principles then. First, if you promise to give something, you ought to give it. Verse 11, it says it there, our eager willingness when we promise to give money ought to be matched by our completion of it. Now, it might sound obvious, but you only need to see the figures after those telethons. Lots of people pledge to give money, but not everyone comes through with the cash. If you say you should give it, you should give it, and I don't think it only applies to money. Working in a church is... uh, is interesting when you're a paid person because you are working with volunteers. Now, I personally think that any volunteer is being very generous and I want to work uh, very kindly with volunteers. But the fact of the matter is if you volunteer and you promise you will do something, you ought to do it. Okay? It's not just, oh, it's only the church and I'm not being paid so don't worry about it. If you promise to do it, you should do it, whether you're being paid or not. Do you understand how that derives from here? The Corinthians made their pledges and promised... Now they should do it. If you promise, you should do it. Second principle. Second principle, you're better off setting money apart regularly, little by little. That's what Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to do, to plan. And it's wise for us as well. If you want to give $500 to Mission Day, great idea. It's going to be a big hole in your weekly pay packet. Much better to put aside $10 a week. If you plan it will actually help you to be more generous without feeling the pain so much. That's part of why we have a collection week by week in church, so that you don't just think, I want to give $1,000 in the year, but I haven't given all year, now I've got to find $1,000. Better off to give, what does that work out, 20 bucks a week or something like that. Okay, better to plan. That's the second principle. Third principle is this. It is right to demand accountability. We ought to insist that churches or charities or missions that we give to be accountable. Make sure that the money is dealt with in a proper and a neutral way. Now you see that in verses 16 to 24. So let me tell you a little bit about our church. 
Here at our church, we work hard to be accountable. When you put money in the collection, it is never handled by anyone who's paid. I never touch it. Warren never touches it. It's counted by two people in this back room here, and they both sign for the amount. It's placed in a safe. It's then picked up and counted again and accounted for and banked by our treasurer. In terms of the way we spend your money, each year the Committee of Management prepares a budget and they bring it to a congregational meeting for you to approve. Now, generally speaking, we have about half a dozen people show up to that congregational meeting. If you want to know what's happening to your money, you want to have some input into what's happening with your money, that's a congregational meeting you should attend. It'll be on in a, in a month or two. Uh, and then we spend in accordance with the budget that's been approved by the congregation. All checks require two signatures. And it's not my wife and myself or something like that as signatories. Okay, nobody who is paid is a signatory. And each year our accounts are in independently audited, audited by somebody who is not on the Committee of Management. We appreciate the way you give generously to our church and, and we want to be accountable for your money. Okay, that's, uh, what was that? Four, three, three. The final and I think the most important principle is this. So if I've lost you, come back with me. Come back with me. If you get one point out of it, get this last point. The final, I think the most important principle is this. Christians ought to excel in giving. Verse 7. Christians ought to excel in giving. This is a way in which Christians should be different from other people. Not because it's a command, verse 8. It's not a matter of grudging obedience to some terrible command from, from, from God. No, it goes way deeper than that. Christians should excel in generous giving because we have been the recipients of the greatest generosity ever. I understand Bill Gates is worth something like $56 billion. And now through the Bill Gates Foundation, he's giving it away. He's giving up enormous riches to benefit other people. It's a financial generosity unparalleled in human history and lots of people are just falling over themselves with how, how, how amazing and wonderful it is. But what Jesus has done is far more generous. Jesus didn't have 56 billion measly dollars. Jesus had all of the riches of heaven itself, all of, rich, all of the riches of a, a perfect, eternal relationship with God. Jesus had... All of that riches. But in an act of sheer generosity, he gave up heaven. He became a man. And that perfect relationship with God was, was just tested to the absolute limit as he became sin on that cross for us. As Paul himself puts it back in chapter 5, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us to become the lowest of the low under the curse of God. Father, why have you forsaken me? He took upon himself that poverty so that you and I can be in relationship with God, so we can have the riches of eternal heaven. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's an extraordinary, amazing generosity, a generosity for which you and I will be eternally grateful. But here's what it means. Here's what it means. You cannot accept that generosity and then be a stinge. You cannot accept that generosity and then be a miser. 
You cannot accept that generosity and then live a selfish, self-indulgent life where you go out shopping for yourself and spend all your money on yourself and you do not give for the needs of others. That's not right. Christians ought to excel in giving. All right. Well, this is a very specific collection that Paul is talking about, but these principles still apply. We ought to give what we promise. We ought to plan our giving. We ought to insist on accountability. But above all, we ought to be generous. If we've received the generosity of Jesus, we ought to excel in the grace of giving. Let's pray. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your extraordinary generosity to, generosity to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that he gave up everything to die on the cross in our place and bear our sin so that we may have everything with you forever blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Father, we thank you for your extraordinary generosity and pray that in response we might be people who excel in giving. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.